At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible. With a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. In three, two, one. On the show today, I am absolutely thrilled to have Kimberly Barthel. Kimberly, among other things, is the co-author of Conversations with a Rattlesnake with Theo Fleury. And you may have listened to the show I did with Theo Fleury earlier on. It is a fantastic episode where we cover a lot of super good stuff. So Kim is an occupational therapist and a mental health expert. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. It's a a delight to be able to talk to you this evening. And I'm talking to you from Iqaluit Nunavut, way up in the Arctic of Canada. That is super duper north. Uh, Dawson City, Yukon is as far Mm. north as I've ever been. So you're Ah. you're well north of that. Mm. So I... You know, it... uh, it, it is, it is, I want you to know how honored I am to be a part of this conversation because I have a very, very deep desire and love for what you're doing to support your, your uh, fellow vets and your emphasis on peer support. So I'm very honored to be speaking to you this evening. Well, it's uh, the honor's all mine to, to have you here. And hopefully, uh, actually not hopefully, I, I know for a fact that during our conversation, we're going to leave some very valuable nuggets for people. Uh, and the listeners to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast, are around the world. And it's not just military mm. and first responders that listen, it's also their families. As a, for instance, my own wife has listened to every episode so she can better understand me and have... Mm. a better perspective on what it is that I'm going through. As a recovery for this is uh, not an easy hill to climb. Mm -mm. So uh, just before we got rolling here, Kimberly, you were uh, saying that you had a story about um, military peer support. Yes. And, you know, it's actually quite linked to where I am in this moment. So, In 2009, I was working here in the Arctic, and I uh, caught H1N1 and was on my way directly from here to speak at the International Trauma Conference in Seattle. And the trauma conference in Seattle was for the military because Seattle is a base uh, to multiple Uh, You know, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Armed Forces are all present in the Seattle area. And, you know, I was speaking to and with uh, a group of physicians and psychiatrists around working with vets and trauma. And I was not in very good shape, feeling kind of, you, you know, unwell. And there was a security guard in the facility that I was speaking in, who was walking around, looking underneath the tables and chairs while I was speaking. And I found this highly unnerving, 
while I was sharing stories and, and information that someone would be, you know, gazing underneath the table and chair, looking for what looked like bombs. That is a little bit off putting. So break. Yeah. He was, it was like he was looking for some hidden device in the room in the middle of my speech. So at the break time, I go out and I say to this young man, is everything okay? And he says to me, oh yeah, everything is better than okay. And I'm like, so what are you doing then? And he said, well, I work here and I have to be looking like I'm doing something. But I really need to be listening to you. And so he made me laugh because, you know, he was faking the work so he could hear the conversation. And then this young man says to me, have you ever seen the movie The Hurt Locker? And I said, oh, definitely. That is a very important movie about trauma and about addiction and about functioning at a very, very high level of adrenaline all the time. And then this boy, this boy, I call him a boy because he was about 25, says to me, that story's about me. I am a bomb diffuser, and I've been deployed to Iraq four times. And like the character in the story, I am unable to function in the grocery store. And you, Kim, are speaking about using the body for healing. Not just talking and not just medication. And you're talking about things like heavy work, moving your body against resistance, exercise, as ways to change the chemistry in your brain. He was really listening. And then he says to me, the only time he felt sane was when he would do combat training in the park in the morning. And that that would be the only period of time in his day associate. Seems counterintuitive, doesn't felt, it? Yeah, it does. He felt connected to himself. And then he says to me, hey, would you come and help me do a research project? Because... You know, I do this combat training with eight other guys who are homeless vets. And I would like to get a grant from, you know, the military to run a peer support group. So I said to him, yeah, like, forget the conference, let's go. And so I met these, and I wanted for themselves. And they all wanted, and in the formula of what helps people heal is a holistic view. It has to include your mind, integration of your emotions, and body and spiritual peace in order for you to land back inside of yourself. So the body part they had figured out. They did 45 minutes of combat training every day. I could have never have drummed up a program like that. But I added to it 
45 minutes of coffee. And it wasn't the coffee. It was the relationship. And I had one rule for them, that they couldn't just sit there and share war stories, trauma stories, adrenaline stories. They had to develop a relationship based on a deeper place in their being. And I taught them mindfulness meditation, which they could do for a minute. It was too hard to stay that present for longer than a minute. To be a research study, I, I took their cortisol, which is a hormone that goes up when you're trying to decrease your stress. And these nine guys really, really high, high levels of cortisol. And if you're going to try and get a research grant, you want to show that something that you do makes a difference. So they did this program for eight months. Every day, sometimes eight times a week. And at the end of eight months, they were all employed. And they didn't want to change the frequency in which they did their combat training or have their coffee. So they increased it to five minutes of mindful meditation. And in the end, they got $7 million to develop the peer support program called Coming Home for the U.S. And, you know, that shows you they were more successful in creating change for themselves by being And last September, I saw them uh, after not having seen them for many years, and all nine of them are yoga instructors at this point and continue to provide a peer support platform uh, in various places across the United States. So... I'm in full uh, belief that not only is peer support helpful, but I believe it is the most helpful thing in the healing process for people who have shared experiences. It seems that one of the force amplifiers for the effects of trauma is being cut off from society. Uh, there's a mm. um, redefined Calgary is uh run by a lady, Liz Durhold, that was on the show uh, a few episodes ago. And it's about creating re uh, a new connection. Because when you have trauma, yes. especially, um, oh, well, I don't know if it's especially, but firsthand, um, when you suffer from military trauma, and just having been in the military at all, in any branch of the military, but I think even more so in the combat arms trades, once you get out, mm. you don't fit anywhere. Uh, because you are not mm. like everybody else. And that creates that division, that, that, that isolation. And breaking the isolation through relationship uh, is a big part of peer support, I believe. You know, I have a question for you, Mark. Oh. Why, what is it about the experience of being in combat that makes uh, people not so keen on sharing that experience with their families. 
Mm. Many of us have had some random goofball come up to us and say, have you ever killed anybody? It's, wow. a, it, it's a funny uh, question to ask, and I understand. Uh, I'm curious, among other veterans as well, if they have or haven't. Um, hmm. One of my friends that has the best response I've ever heard to that answer is, what's your favorite sexual position with your wife? And then they, hmm. they look at it like, what the heck are you asking? That's none of your damn business. He goes, yeah. Either is the question you just asked. Yeah. And it's no less personal than the, than, uh, the question you just asked. Because mm. there's nothing cool uh, or fun yeah. about uh, taking a, a human life. And for those that laugh about it, and that have actually done it, that's just a defense mechanism. And sure. sometimes that defense mechanism will stay in place 20, 30 years before the yeah. walls start to come down and then the horror of it starts to come rolling in. Mm. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, combat PTSD can sometimes go undiagnosed for 20, 30 years. It, mm. it does happen. So there's that part of it. Um, actually talking a, about the gore, about, uh, yep. about taking another human life. But the other part is that it's like trying to describe skydiving. You can't. It's one of those things that's experiential and you know it's experiential. And the only people that uh, you can actually have a conversation about skydiving with are other people that have gone skydiving. And it's, it's like yeah. that in um, any war zone, whether you saw combat or not. But if you did see combat and you actually shot bullets in the other direction and you had them coming back at you, um, I'm lucky. Mm. Uh, mine was a peacekeeping tour, so there wasn't a great deal of combat there. There was some, though. Mm -hmm. um, a year prior, uh, it wasn't my tour, uh, but uh, the Battle of Medak Pocket happened, the largest battle since Korea that most Canadians don't know about. And that was my regiment mm -hmm. that was there, as well as the Calgary Highlanders, and it was a three-year, four-day firefight. It was unbelievable. So that was some crazy wow. combat, even heavier than most things that have happened in Afghanistan, and it happened in 1993. Um, mm -hmm. But... Explaining that, I mean, that's only, you can only talk about it with the others that were there. And um, right. I've had ask, uh, people ask me, so what's genocide like? <laughs> well, how the heck do you explain that? You can't. You know, you could paint the pictures, uh, but uh, it's, it's just impossible to, to truly understand. And that also creates a barrier with some veterans because they don't want to talk with a, a clinician sometimes because they they feel right. that the clinician has to understand the experience, which isn't true at all. Mm. But the clinician just has to know how to listen and, and, and to treat the symptoms. Mm. But that, that would be my, but I think my long what answer. Happens, what happens to many clinicians, at least clinicians that I teach, is that, I'll give you an example I was just um, supporting, a group of clinicians that work with the Yassidi families who are, you know, refugees in Canada. And they are families that were recipient uh, of torture uh, under the ISIS, ISIL regime. And the therapists are vicariously traumatized so significantly that they are unable to hold space for what they are holding space for. Mm -hmm. And 
that is uh, critical in the healing process is to be able to stay present to what it is you're listening to uh, being with without yourself becoming completely traumatized in the in the in the process of that support so it is a it is a very what you're saying makes tremendous sense because when you have been through the experience together there will be a tolerance and an understanding and a knowing that other people just wouldn't have of what it is that um, it was like. A friend of mine uh, that I actually went to junior high with is a paramedic in Airdrie, or well, Calgary in Airdrie. <laughs> and uh, he's, in, mm-hmm. he's in charge now of uh, exposure therapy program. Uh, and it's paramedics that deal with it with other paramedics because of what he calls cultural competence, um, because they can mm. rate, relate directly. It, it, it helps it mm-hmm. just be more effective. Um, another example, uh, I've been in therapy three years now, give or take. And in the beginning, right. it takes a long time to get into therapy at the, at, um, veterans affairs at the operational stress injury clinic. And as a stopgap in the meantime, they have what's called, Oh, I'm gapping on it again. Not decompression. Um, <laughs> it's, okay. it's like a decompression. It, it's a 10-week program that they put, uh, stabilization series. That's what it's called. Okay, and, okay. And, and it's rejected by a lot of us. I've seen it on, because I would call in and I would see on the webcam. I'd see people pop up, leave, and never come back. And it was because of the tone of the clinicians that d- just yeah. sounded, they needed to hear their own voice. And the subject matter did not require professionals to deliver it. It could have been one of us that yeah. have been on the other side of therapy for for enough time that they could do it. And had it been in a different voice that they that they would relate to, uh, as an example, mm-hmm. first responders, veterans were uh, we, we all have a very similar language and dark, dark humor and. And, sure. uh, and sort sure. of a mutual yeah. respect for each other because, um, yeah. as I've explained, the way I say it is that we've been, we stood in, in the presence of the devil himself and mm-hmm. we have seen the face of evil. And to me, that's that moral injury component, uh, that is, a, mm. is one of the worst parts and, and the most difficult to treat and to get over, um, to, to recover from i'm not i'm not sure that your audience knows the profoundness of what you've just said because that term moral injury is a critical term that you just used because in the world of trauma there's a complexity here of what we call shock and then there's developmental trauma which is separate. And if those two land together, then you have which actually for clinicians is, an, is very difficult because every time they try to create a sense of stability for a shock event, we can talk about what that is in a second, they may find themselves landing there client 
into a developmental trauma that happened when they were a child and the person even less stable. So, you know, the whole moral injury is I have had the opportunity to work with child soldiers. You know, children, the kids that I worked with were from North Africa. And these were kids that had to rape their mothers and kill their families to survive themselves. And that level of moral injury is exactly the word that we use because you lose a sense of yourself in the experience. And so many uh, clients, patients, people, they seek to find that part of themselves again. And I had a vet say to me once, I'm going to be better, Kim, when I don't remember. And I said to him, well, then you're going to be dead. It isn't a matter of remembering or not remembering. It's a matter of putting yourself back together in it. In spite of that feeling of your peace that is lost. And that's the hardest work, I think, in the human experience. I think also not seeing it as a loss of self. Um, mm. I, I have said yeah. it, I, I did it in a piece that I wrote about why we remember that no one ever truly comes home from war. And in the world of uh, first responders, it's the same idea. Um, you, you, don't, yeah. you don't come back from, from some of those calls. And theirs is more cumulative. It's more death by a thousand cuts, but not always. Sometimes it's a single, right. unbelievable, mind-bendingly horrific scene that uh, yep. all by itself is enough to cause injury. And, um, but either way, standing in, in the presence of the devil, whether the devil was in somebody else or one of the complex things of being a combat soldier, sometimes the devil was in you. And, yes. and you in had yourself. to perform yes. what you perceive as an evil. Uh, that, yep. that, that does create extra layers that are really difficult to, to work through. You know, I have never been on the front line in a way of support. Meaning, one of the things that I have always believed is what can be the most helpful in decreasing post-traumatic stress disorder is who's there, the trauma. I'm sorry, um, you, um, that last and bit cut out. It's about, about who, what, the trauma? Yep, who's there who's there at the time of the trauma right. can be a really powerful force to decrease post-traumatic stress disorder. I had on the show um, uh, an episode or two ago, Dr. Robert Perkins, uh, psychophysiology. Mm. Are, you, are you familiar with him? No, no. Well, it's, Tell me more. Well, he was saying that if you have a, somebody who's properly trained in critical incident stress debriefing, um, yeah. which the layperson can learn and implement, that it reduces the uh, instances of that traumatic event turning into PTSD by at least eighty-five percent. That's what we. That's what we're told. You know, uh, when I I think about myself, the most um, critical crisis that I have attended is is Hurricane Katrina, oh. and 
people would say to me, Kim, what, what do you do when you're in the middle of a hurricane? And you hold a lot of hands and you just stay present. And, and people go, okay, that doesn't sound like much. But I would imagine, and I wonder, I always wonder, for soldiers, if they have that kind of support when there is, you know, an event or a shock or a, a combat episode that, that changes them forever, that there was a person that was there, did that make a difference in the way that we hope that it does? Back in 1994, uh, when I did my tour in, uh, during the Civil War in Croatia, uh, we had, I mean, there was a lot of incidents where I definitely could have used a critical instant stress debriefer. There's probably a dozen of them. Um, but one of them where we actually did receive that, it was from the Padre. So our carrier almost mm. went off the top of this uh, bridge and it would have killed us all. And truly a miracle, like the hand of God came down and put our armored personnel carrier back on this bridge. There's no way, according to physics, the trajectory... It, it should have gone off the edge of the bridge. And there's about eight or 10 huh. of us in the carrier, give or take. I can't remember exactly. I think it was eight of us. And um, anyway, we survived. Uh, not exactly scot-free though. Wow. Well, one person was bounced around and uh, he's still um, suffering all these years later. And uh, another mm. one got uh, uh, sent home because he had a complete break- breakdown after it. But we did sit with the Padre later on, and he did whatever, in 1994, their version of critical incident stress debriefing was. And I think that was helpful. Yes. But apparently uh, the protocol for that has developed quite a bit over the years. Yes. You know, Theo and I, I don't know if he told you this in, in his conversation with you, but he and I were invited to speak at the very first post-traumatic stress disorder conference for the military in Newfoundland. And what year was that? Uh, it Kim? was all the military. Oh, I'm trying to think now, maybe two years ago. Oh, two? see, it's a brand new conversation. Yep. It, two, two or three years ago. And there, the two of us, as well as Amanda Lindhout, who wrote a house in the sky. And she was captured in Somalia and kept in captivity for 18 months. And the three of us were uh, the keynote speakers at this conference. And it was first responders, the Canadian military, all the police uh, and the RCMP, like all of the frontline service providers, as well as the emergency room nurses. And they they shared some pretty interesting research uh, that I thought was very interesting to, from my perspective was that most of their members that they had studied who had a post-traumatic stress disorder experience had some pretty uh, disposed developmental traumas before they went into the military. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, speaks to the... talked about resilience. And if you have these early developmental trauma in your childhood uh, backdrops that it doesn't give you as safe a place to land in yourself after that level of intensity of event trauma. 
and that that created the more complex picture for many of their of their survivors. No, it's true. I mean, the the trauma cup. It doesn't matter if it's from childhood or whatever. It's all related and it's all cumulative. Uh, mm-hmm. And the more that you've had uh, in your childhood, the le- the more susceptible you are to PTSD in in adulthood. But I've also noticed that, and and as you've already said. People that have uh, suffered a lot of childhood trauma, um, they can take it a couple of different ways, but one of the ways that I've seen quite commonly is that people want to go from a place of being completely disempowered to be, to a position of being empowered, and that's why yeah. they tend to gravitate towards first responder and military, so that they, they can find a sense of, of uh, personal strength. And, uh, but when the and, traumatic events happen, they've got the childhood trauma on top of the traumatic event and it makes them way less resilient to, um, to the yeah. event trauma. One of my favorite books that I ever read was called The Upside, The Upside of Trauma. And it was a journalist who wrote about different forms of trauma and how people transformed it into amazingness in their in their personal lives, kind of like what you're doing. Using their experiences for transformation in the world. And you know that yeah, you're right. The choice it can go one way or the other, or maybe it has to go in different directions in order for you to find that place of resilience in yourself. For somebody that has a friend who's in distress, what would be some of the do's, top two or three do's and don'ts uh, when you in, mm. engage with that person? And how would you engage with that person? Love that, Love that question. First of all, be honest. If you can't truly, honestly hold space, be honest. Because the nonverbals that come with faking it, if you can't do it, is more damaging than the honesty. My husband had meningitis last summer and almost died. We were in China and he was in the ICU and I called my friend in the middle of the day because I thought this was it. And my friend said to me, Kim, I can't do this with you. Bob means as much to me, too. We need to get someone else on the line because I can't hold space for this topic. And as sort of cruel that might sound, it was so honest. Because when you don't know how to hold space, it's better not to do it. That's number one. Number two is don't try to fix it because there is no fixing it. There's just listening. Often there's a temptation to say, well, at least blah, 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 blah. At least you didn't have this. Or I'm so glad you got to come home. We may, with good intentions, decide to shore people up or distract them from their feelings by how we engage. 
and we end up dismissing their experience. Without knowing that we're even doing empathy, it. Yeah, empathy is feeling with people, not, not fixing it. And the third thing is don't be afraid to show your own emotions. Because when you listen to horrible things and you really care for the person, if you have tears that come up or, you know, if it feels really uncomfortable for you, there's a a resonance in that. And if I had to add a number four, don't hijack another person's story with your own. <laughs> yes, indeed. Making it about yourself. Mm. Because again, if you have a shared experience, there may be a temptation to do that. Yeah, and it's always That's it's always, it's always well meaning, but uh, nobody mm. likes it when it happens to them. And the, but they uh, a lot of people have trouble <laughs> being self aware, the knowing that they're making it about themselves. Uh, through experience, we all know the quest- the friends that we can't share anything with because they'll say, "Oh yeah, well that same thing happened to me." And let me tell you my story about what. About <laughs> uh, never mind about your story. Mine's way more interesting. And uh, then yes. they turn they turn it around to their story instead of listening to your story. Yeah, and it may be with the intention of not of hoping that you won't feel alone, but. Can really be uh, deeper. Oh, you're and up I've seen again. that happen so many times. Oh, you're back. We've we've been getting mm. some pretty good luck, Kim. Uh, overall, the uh, we've been able to catch the vast majority uh, on, on your okay, end. Good. But uh, there's, uh, I do apologize to the audience. There has been some a little bit of in and out, but um, try try to circle back and if I we am, do. I I apologize too. <laughs> it's okay. Um. Now, you are one busy lady. Uh, all these different things that you've got going on, the Kim and Theo, uh, you have a TV show coming up. Tell me about that. Well, uh, we, we... Or you were going to shoot a pilot anyway. We shot a pilot already. Okay. That. We also um, did a documentary. Um, and, and these, you know, the interesting thing, television and documentaries is sometimes you do them and they may not ever go anywhere, but there's a but to that. So I did a, uh, oh, sorry. I, I, I didn't hear the last, uh, the last five seconds there. Okay. Theo and I did a documentary in Stony Mountain Penitentiary. Okay. It is a maximum security penitentiary we interviewed 25 lifers, inmates, who shared with us their story. And the documentary was, it was incredible experience. And you never know whether something that you film will ever get used or not. So that incredible experience currently sits in suspended animation. Who knows if it will ever see the day. But for both Theo and I, and for the inmates, it was a transformational experience. So even if it never goes anywhere, it changed all of us 
forever. So, you know, that's, that's the interesting thing about creating film or creating uh, documentaries or doing a TV show is even though you do it, it may not always Oh, I think I might have lost you, Kim. I'm still here. Oh, you're you're back. Well, okay. we we are at 36 no. minutes, and I have got so much written down. We could probably do this wow. for the next six hours, but um, I think we're going to have to circle back. And uh, would you would you uh, consider uh, having another conversation with me in the future? I would. Yes. All right. Fantastic. Well. It if I were in a different location where I didn't have to worry about the cell signal. Well, next time you're in Calgary, we'll, uh, we'll try to sneak in here. Maybe we can get both you and Theo in at the same time. That would be awesome. Thank you, Mark. Perfect. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Today we have had Kim Barthel, uh, just an incredible guest. She's an occupational therapist, uh, trauma specialist, and global, globally recognized expert in trauma and trauma therapy. So, uh, Kim, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Please stay on the line as we wrap it up. This is Operation Tango Romeo. I'm your OPSO, Mark Mankey. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast.